0: Uh, And John 3.16, what I would consider probably the most well-known Bible verse uh, in the scriptures uh, for a number of different reasons. It's a beautiful summary of really what the gospel is, really what the entire Bible is about, can be found in this uh, sentence. Uh, But then you also have other people who help bolster its popularity. Uh, So we're down in Florida. So there's a guy named Tim Tebow that some of you have probably heard of. Uh, And in 2009, whenever he was at the University of Florida, he was playing in the BCS National Championship game against Oklahoma. That entire year, he had eye black underneath his eyes, and he'd always put the same verse on that eye black, Philippians 4.12, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, including win the Heisman and SEC championship, apparently is what Paul meant by that verse. Um, but uh, he had that same verse on there every single week, but right before the national championship game, he decided to change it two days before. And I don't know if, you're, if you played sports, you'll understand this. If not, uh, let me introduce you to something, but People who play sports are incredibly superstitious. Baseball is the worst. Uh, but in every sport, there's a certain superstition. So two days before, Tim comes to his teammates, his coach, said, hey, I'm going to change the verse on my eye black uh, from the entire uh, year that I've had on there. And everyone begins to get a little nervous. They Tim, are you sure this is a good idea? Tim said, I, I think it is. This is going to be the biggest stage I've ever played on. I want to make sure that, the, that what people see is a summary of really what the Bible's about. And so he put John 3.16 on his eye black. In the national championship game, as they beat Oklahoma that year. Now, the next day, over the next 24 hours, John 3:16 was the most googled thing on Google in the world, with over 92 million searches. So Tim Tebow almost broke Google with his eye black. Uh, and what that what that showed me is, yes, this is John 3:16 is an incredibly popular verse. Bible Gateway, it's the most searched verse on their entire database. But for many, too, they don't truly know what it means. They see this on his eye black and go, what does that say? They get on there and search. And so while it may be familiar, I hope the familiarity to some of you may not lessen its significance this morning. Because often I've seen familiarity and apathy breathe contempt in our hearts. We just get used to stuff and it loses its luster and its flavor. And so my hope and prayer this morning is that we don't just hear these words and go, oh, yeah, I've heard that my whole life. But come and hear it freshly this morning and hear the hope of salvation that's found in this verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's the hope that's offered forward Before we get into that verse, I want us to kind of do a little bit of background work on what the last uh, few verses have been leading up to this. Because John now is the author of this gospel, and as he's writing it, we're shifting from a story, a conversation between Jesus and a man named Nicodemus, to now in John 3.16, it's John's voice, the author, as he's kind of summarizing what has just happened. So we need to make sure, well, what is it that just has taken place? What does this conversation look like between Jesus and Nicodemus in chapter 3, verses 1 through 15? Uh, so pretty much Nicodemus is a man who comes to Jesus and begins to ask him some questions. Now, Nicodemus was a part of the religious elite uh, of that day. He was a, of a group called the Pharisees. Uh, and the, these people were the, kind of the origis, religious upper class as they knew the Old Testament scriptures. They were strict adherents to the law. And he came to Jesus and he said, pretty much, what do I I have to do to enter the kingdom of heaven? Jesus, what must I do to be saved? Jesus answers, well, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus doesn't quite understand what he means by that. He says, how can a person be born a second time? So Jesus responds, he said, the only way you can be born again is through the Spirit. He said, I'm not talking about a physical birth like April the giraffe and her physical birth that just happened in Tampa. Finally, after like, well, like a four-month labor, um, the suspense is over, the giraffe is here. Happy Easter. Um, he said, no, I'm not talking about a physical birth. Because that which comes from the flesh is flesh, but that which comes from the spirit is spirit. And that's what I'm talking about, Nicodemus. I'm talking about a spiritual birth, and only the spirit can bring that. No amount of work that you do or no amount of morality that you can muster up will earn you entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Only the spirit of God can come and give you a new heart and put his spirit within you. That's your only hope to be born again. Nicodemus still doesn't quite get it, and in verse 9 of chapter 3, he says, how can these things be? So, Jesus shifts. He kind of stops trying to teach him what's going on, and he shifts to now a story that Nicodemus would be familiar with. And as he's trying to explain these spiritual truths of what it means to be saved, how we can enter into the kingdom of God, in verse 14, Jesus makes reference to this obscure story in the Old Testament. He says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. It's a strange story to reference. It's back in Numbers 21. We looked at it a little bit last week, but in recap, what the story in Numbers 21 is, is these are the people of Israel who have now been delivered out of uh, slavery in Egypt. Right, they were there in slavery. They cried out for God. God sent Charleston Heston to send them and break them free from their slavery. About half the room got that. Everyone else is like, it's Charlton Heston. He's like Justin Timberlake. Yeah, sure, he's like Justin Timberlake, if that helps. But he's delivered out of Egypt, and they're now wandering through the wilderness. They've been set free from their captivity, but they don't have any food, and so God begins to provide food for them, this thing called manna, this heavenly food that would sustain them. But here in Numbers 21, they begin to complain a little bit. They begin to say, oh, this, this food has no taste. We can't stand it. We're wandering around in the desert. It's so hot and sticky. Judith smells terrible back there. I wish we would just be back in Egypt. It would just be better for us there. They begin to complain and murmur. So God then, in response to that sin, in response to that rebellion, he sends his judgment. In this story, what he sends are these fiery serpents. He sends these snakes among the camp, and these snakes begin to bite the people, and anyone who's bitten by the snakes die. There is no hope. There is no cure. So the people come back to Moses and say, okay, we were, listen, we were wrong. We've sinned against you and the Lord. Pray that God would remove the serpents from the camp. Moses goes and prays, and God tells Moses not to remove the serpents, he said, but instead, go and make a bronze serpent. Put it on a staff and lift it up in the middle of the camp. And anyone who's bitten by the serpent, if they look to that bronze serpent, they will live. And Jesus is making the comparison, he says, Nicodemus, you know that story in Numbers, right? Remember the whole thing with the serpents and the grumbling in Charlton Heston? Remember that. In the same way that the serpent was lifted up, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So whoever looked at the serpent lived, and whoever looks to me will live. He said, that is the message of the gospel. Nicodemus said, that is how you enter the kingdom of God, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life, we see in verse 15. So John now enters in, in verse 16, kind of summarizing this, uh, this conversation. And he says, for God so loved the world, See, he's the one connecting it. That very first word, for, it's conjunction. It's connecting what he's about to say to what has just been said. He said, so because, for, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, there's a number of things happening in this verse. There's one thing in particular I want to focus in on this morning. uh, But we're going to run through kind of uh, quickly the entirety of the verse. we see the beginning God so loved the world friends this is the motivation for why God sent his son he didn't do it out of obligation Uh, he didn't do it out of some sense of uh, of vain uh, glory trying to just get more praise on himself but what motivated God to send his son was his love for you and so I said earlier one of my favorite words is uh, propitiation another one of my favorite words is here in this verse The word so, it's a little bit shorter. (laughs) Uh, But the reason why I love it is because had this verse read like this, for God loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Friends, that would be the most hope-filled message this world has ever seen. It would still be beautiful and glorious. But God wanted to make sure the Holy Spirit inspiring John said, no, 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 make sure you put this word in there. I want them to know I don't just love them. I have so loved them. There is a divine intensity to God's love for you. There is a glorious affection that God has for you that he would send his son. This love is not just some fickle emotion that comes and goes with the wind, but no, God's love is a covenant love, one that is a promise that looks at us and says, I'm not going anywhere. I love you. And this is a commitment and promise to you that nothing will shake that. No one will pluck you from my hands. If you believe in me, then you will be mine forever. I have loved you, and I am not going anywhere. And friends, this is in stark contrast to kind of what the modern view of love is today in our culture. As people fall in and out of love, it seems like on a week's notice. Friends, what God says and what a biblical view of love is, is a love that says, hey, in the good times and the bad, in times where maybe my feelings are there and in times where they're not, I will be there and I will love you. Friends, what it means is that God will never fall out of love with you, He will always be there. He has so loved the world, that was His motivation. And what did it motivate him to do? It motivated him to give his only son. The greatest love gave the greatest gift, his only son. This is the nature of true love. It sacrifices. It does not take. It does not say, yes, I will love you as long as you continue to to fill me up. As long as you continue to meet my needs, then, yes, I will love you. But the moment you stop doing that and my affections cease and my feelings begin to subside, then I'm gone. That's not what love is. Love gives. It sacrifices. It works for the betterment of others. It is constantly looking outward, not focused inward. In the words of the great philosophers of the band Boston, it is more than a feeling. (laughs) Again, half of you got that. (laughs) But God is saying that I have loved you and so I gave you the greatest thing that I know to give. My only son. But now here's what I want to focus in on, and we'll finish up and come back to this, but it's this conditional statement here. So we see God's motive and we see his action, but now there's a conditional statement that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him, and then we see the results of it. So we'll come back to what that means. Whoever believes in him, that's conditional. If we do that, then this is the result. We should not perish but have eternal life. We've been taken out of our negative reality and placed into a positive one. We've been taken from death and darkness and place into life and light. Because this is the reality for everyone who's ever walked the face of the earth apart from Christ. That we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one who walks with a type of swagger that says, I have walked in complete righteousness. Now friends, we all know our own hearts and we know how often we fall. We know that as the hymn says, we are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And this is our reality, that we are all walking this hell-bound race towards death. Because as a result of our sin and our rebellion, just like the Israelites, God's judgment is placed on us. Because he is a good and just and holy God. He cannot just turn and ignore what we've done. And so his judgment is fixed on us. This wrath in response to our sin is set on each and every one of us. We are all walking towards that road to death. Both physically and eternally. But here, whoever believes would be taken from that reality and should not perish, but will be placed into eternal life. What a beautiful, beautiful hope that we have. But it's all contingent upon this one phrase whoever believes in him. Whoever believes. So, what does that mean? What does it mean to believe? That's what I want to kind of focus in on now and spend the rest of our time. What does it mean to believe in him? Right, because I believe a number of things. I believe that Mississippi State is the best football team in the country, and they absolutely are not. <laughs> so hopefully that is not the type of belief that he means. What does he mean here then? What well, means not only to believe, to intellectually agree to true things, but it means to put your trust in. To look to Christ and say, okay, I see I see who you are. I hear your promises. And I see what you're offering me. And I will trust you. Even in moments where it may seem like, okay, I hear what you're saying, but I don't necessarily want to go there. Submitting and going, no, 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 I trust you. You are both my Savior and my Lord. You are sovereign over every square inch and facet and nook and cranny of my life. I submit it all to you because, not out of obligation or fear of some kind of punishment, but out of trust, knowing that that He is a good, good Father and a good, good Savior, and we can trust Him with every portion of our lives. And so we walk in submission to Him, trusting Him. There's another word that we see here that believe means... We see, as Jesus is comparing this whole story with the serpent in the wilderness, he's saying, Nicodemus, do you remember? That serpent was lifted up. Whoever believed in God looked to the serpent. They looked, and whoever would look would live. And Jesus and John here are saying both, yes, believe in me, but another word that they're trying to get across here is they're saying look. Look to me. Lift your eyes to me. I am lifted up, not on a staff or a rod, but I'm lifted up on a tree, on a piece of wood, on the cross. And if you look to me, just like those Israelites in the desert, then you will live. Look, look, look to Christ. This is uh, a part of uh, Charles Spurgeon's testimonies. Charles Spurgeon was the a famous 1800s preacher, a Baptist congregational preacher in England. Possibly the most uh, uh, famous and popular preacher ever to have existed. Uh, so a little bit about uh, what he experienced. It says, this was on encyclopedia.com, said that Spurgeon enjoyed a meteoric rise in his ministry. By 1855, the congregation was so large, it could no longer fit inside of their church. So the, the, where they were could accommodate crowds of 10,000, but they had to grow beyond that. Once Spurgeon reportedly addressed a crowd of more than 20,000 people at one time without any mechanical amplification. My man. <laughs> he was so popular that at times he urged his own members not to attend the services so that people who were new could come and hear him speak and preach the gospel. So they eventually built their own congregation and church because they couldn't find one large enough, known as the Metropolitan Tabernacle. It could seat 6,000. They would have multiple services every Sunday, built and dedicated in 1861. It was filled to capacity twice each Sunday during Spurgeon's 30-year tenure there as the pastor. In the history of Christianity, no other minister is more widely read after biblical ones than Charles Spurgeon. He has more material available to readers than any other Christian author, dead or alive. The guy was the man. He could grow a beard and he could preach. (laughs) But to hear the story in his own words of his testimony, I love, I love how God does stuff like this. Hear the way in which Charles was first saved, this man that was used mightily for the kingdom. Hear how he came to, to know the Lord. These are in his own words, in his biography. He said, I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now, had it not been for the goodness of God. In sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning, don't think we're going to see that here in Orlando. While I was going to a certain place of worship, everything was snowed in. I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist church. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. I'd heard of the primitive Methodist and how they sang so loudly that they made people's heads ache. I love Spurgeon, by the way. But that did not matter to me. I wanted to know how I might be saved. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, after some time, a very thin looking man, a shoemaker or a tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. Now, it is well that preachers be instructed, but this man was really stupid. He was obliged to stick to the text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was this: Isaiah forty-five twenty-two. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. Now he did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimmer of hope for me in that text. The preacher began thus: This is a very simple text indeed. It says, "Look." Now look, and don't take a deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. I He said in his broad English accent many of you are looking to yourselves but it's no use looking there you'll find no comfort in yourselves some say look to God the Father no look to him by and by Jesus Christ says look unto me some of you say we must wait for the spirits working you have no business with that just now look to Christ the text says look unto me then the good man followed up his text in this way Look unto me, I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I'm dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me. Look unto me. When he had managed to spend about 10 minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. And he looked at me under the gallery And I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. And fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all of my heart, he said, young man, you look very miserable. Now, in that moment, I was not used to hear from the pulpit comments about my personal appearance before. However, this remark made a good blow, and it struck right home. He continued, and you will always be miserable Miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. And lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do. Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. And I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought. I've been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard the word look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could have looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away, and that moment I saw the sun. And I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks to him alone so Spurgeon heard this message from some guy who had probably never preached before in his life but the message was simple look to Christ just as the serpent was lifted up and those looked to him and live if you look to Christ then you will also live and God used some small, no-name tailor or shoemaker who we don't know his name to lead the greatest preacher in history to Christ. Friends, what could he do with us in our simple obedience in our lives? I wonder if this preacher even knew who he had talked to or what would come of it. Friends, often we won't know the fruit of our lives until we've already laid in the ground and then it springs up. But that is not why we obey knowing that we trust God to do things that are far greater than we can ask or imagine. But this message to look, it's the same message that John is trying to teach his readers or the ones who would hear this gospel or even us today. He's saying that no matter what baggage you might have brought in here, life is offered to you today and you can have it today. We may ask like Nicodemus, what must I do to be saved? Friends, you don't have to work for your salvation. You don't have to earn God's love. Remember, he so loved you that he gave his son. We don't have to earn that. We don't have to somehow work to try to stay in his good graces. We simply must look to him and we will live. Well, maybe you're here and you think, that sounds great, but I don't know if I have enough faith for that, honestly. Or maybe you're here and you're not a Christian you said, I I have too many doubts and skepticism still. I don't know if I can step forward and actually do that. It's still, there's so many things that are unknown. Friends, that God will answer some of those. He may not answer all of them, but he first calls you to look. He doesn't promise to answer all of your questions before stepping into him. He says, just look. You don't have to have much faith, just some. Just enough to look. Maybe you're here and you're a Christian and you're just struggling. Maybe you're in the midst of some sort of difficulty or pain or tragedy in your life. Yesterday I was texting one of my friends here in Orlando whose dad passed away suddenly at far too young of an age. And all of these words that we sing about death being conquered no longer are just ethereal ideas, but they are true realities that give us hope in the midst of tragedy and suffering that this faith is something that gives us something to hold on to, not just a smile we plaster on our, fa- our faces and act like everything's fine, but firm footing that we may be sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. But maybe you come in here limping, going, I-, I don't know if I have enough faith with everything that's going around in my life right now. Or maybe you come in and you're entangled and trapped in sin, Maybe it's the same sin that you've been trying to battle for years. And no matter how much you hate it or how hard you try, you find yourself constantly falling back into it. And you go, oh, I wish. I wish I could have that kind of faith that could constantly look to Christ to overcome this, but I just always fall. And I'm beginning to hear the enemy tell me that I'm not worth it. To say, you think God would die for you look at what you keep doing do you think that he would actually save you and perhaps we're beginning to believe some of those lies and go yes I don't have that kind of faith I don't have that amount of faith that would look and live regardless of what circumstance you may be in regardless of how much faith you feel regardless what doubts or skepticisms you may have Friends, we are not saved by how much faith we have. We are saved by the one in which our faith looks. Right? Remember the story of the Israelites there in the camp as the saints were coming in? I want you to try to imagine a hypothetical situation with me. I try to imagine two Jewish men who were there in the camp. We'll call them Smith and Jones, two remarkably Jewish names. <laughs> They're sitting there talking to one another. This is now a few days since the snakes have started to come in. And Smith is talking to Jones saying, hey, have you, have you heard about these snakes? Have you seen them around? And Jones is like, yeah, I've seen them. I haven't gotten bitten yet, but my brother was bitten a few days ago and he died. Smith's like, I, I know. A few of my friends are gone. And I, and I, I, I don't know what to do, but, but this morning, Jones, did you hear what Moses said? Did you hear? He said that God told him that he made this serpent and put it up in the camp. So now if anyone's bitten, if we look to the serpent, then we'll live. Did you hear that? Jones responds, yeah, I mean, I, I heard it, and that would be awesome if it's true, but do you realize what you're saying, that if we're bitten by a snake, that I've looked around and seen all of these people dying, if we look at this metal statue, then we'll live? I mean, I hope it's true, but honestly, just with everything that's been going on here recently, from the whole Red Sea fiasco, and there was one moment where the earth opened up and people were swallowed into it, that was, there's just been weird stuff happening, and I don't know if this is going to work. And Smith responds, I trust my God. I have no doubt. If I'm bitten, I will walk boldly into the center of the camp and look at that serpent, and I know that I will live, because my God will do what he promised to do. Jones responds, I mean, that would, gosh, that would be great. I just don't know. That moment, imagine two snakes beginning to slither in, then underneath the tent, biting both of them. Smith, doing just as he said, walked courageously to the middle of the camp, looked up, and saw the serpent. Jones was scared. He didn't know what was going to happen. He went immediately to try to find the doctor and said, hey, is there anything that you can do? The doctor's like, listen, we've tried everything. We have no cure for this. He then begins to go and try to find someone to maybe suck out the poison but his fever is spiking rapidly. He feels his strength going away. He knows he doesn't have much longer, and so he limps to the middle of the camp and in desperation, with no other options, lifts his eyes and looks to the serpent. My friends, my question this morning, which one of those two men lost their life? The answer is, of course, neither. Neither. because we've got to see it is not the amount or the intensity or the clarity of our faith that saves us it is the object of our faith and so if you're here this morning and you have doubts about the about God and you don't know if you can have the type of faith that may save that you feel like you may only be able to glance friends that is enough if you glance to Christ Or maybe you're in here going, I don't know if I can look to him in the middle of my circumstances. There's too much pain around me. Why would he do this? If you look to him, then it is enough. Or if you're entangled in sin, beginning to hear the enemy whisper that you are not worth it, look to the Son of Man who is lifted up and have the confidence that it is not the amount of your faith that will save you, but the object of your faith. And friends, the object of our faith is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is the one who has come into this world, a perfect God who came and lived a life that we could never live, seeing us trapped in our sin, caught, enslaved, entangled, nothing to be able to get out of it. He came out of his love and gave his son to live a perfect life that we could never live, perfectly righteous, and then he died a death that we deserved on the cross and it's amazing what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5 and Galatians 3 saying that in that moment on the cross, Christ became a curse for us, that he became sin. And so he lived a life we could never live, but then he died a death that we deserved, standing in our place and bearing on himself the punishment which brought us peace, absorbing the wrath of God for us. And then he died. God died. But he did not stay dead. And three days later... He rose again, showing that that payment that he gave to the Father was accepted and that he has now conquered sin and death. And everyone who believes in him will have that same life, not on the merits of what we've done, or not on the amounts of our morality or the intensity of our faith, but through our connection and union with him the one who has risen again, that we are tied to him and now everything that he experienced, we will experience as well. That is the life that we receive. And so this morning, if your soul is weary and troubled, no light in the darkness you see, friends, there is a light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. So turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Look to Christ. Look to Christ, the Holy One, who is God and unlike any other, Look to Christ, the righteous one who lived a life without sin, a life that we could never live. Look to Christ the suffering one who then died a death that we deserve look to Christ the obedient one who was crushed by the father absorbing the wrath that was meant for us look to Christ now the risen one who then crushed the power of sin and death look to Christ the living one who is the only person in history who has ever died who is no longer dead look to Christ the sovereign one who takes that which was meant for evil in your life and turns it for good and his glory look to Christ, the loving, sustaining, advocating, justice-bringing, avenging one who will one day return and complete this story of redemption. Friends, this morning, look to Christ. Our message here this Easter really is that simple. But this simple message carries with it an eternal weight and consequence. So what will you choose today? Will you continue looking down, walking towards death? Will you lift your eyes to gaze on the Christ and live? Look to Christ and live. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. God, we do not deserve it, but we are so grateful for it. Help us to love others like you have loved us. God, a sacrificial and giving love that looks for the betterment of those around us. God, would you lift our eyes this morning to see Jesus lifted up, risen from the dead, and leaving behind an empty tomb. Move here in our hearts, God, and in this city. May your name be lifted higher, and may we all look and live. We pray all of this in Christ's name, amen.